The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. Each episode, we look at stories from business leaders who have dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope workplaces can change in the future. Today, we're going to talk about you and your anxiety for the long haul with Dr. Alice Boys. Now, I have to say right at the top here, stay tuned to the end of this episode. It's gold. I, I find it just very helpful advice. And, and this is Alice Boy's real point of view, which is that, you know, it's not the anxiety. And you may not be able to get rid of your anxiety. What you work on is making good decisions and managing the traps that your anxiety might lead you into, right? And I think that this is so helpful because for some of us, you know, anxiety is our reality. Some of us feel like maybe anxiety is our old friend. I always say it's one of my most intimate and longstanding relationships. A dysfunctional and not 100% well-meaning one, but nonetheless. So understanding your anxiety and its bad habits and your patterns around it is really, really important. You know, way back in our first episode, Scott Stossel reminded me of a famous quote by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the assessment that something else is more important than fear. Now, if you're anxious by nature, fear may be part of your daily life in ways others just can't relate to. But today with Dr. Alice Boys, we're going to focus on understanding the fears and understanding the ways that we react to them and how we can make those reactions more adaptive and less destructive even while we're making peace with our anxious nature. So let's explore the many sides of life with anxiety with Dr. Alice Boys. She's the author of the Healthy Mind Toolkit and the Anxiety Toolkit. She's a former clinical psychologist and researcher turned writer, and I really love her helpful and practical approach to living with an anxious nature. So, Alice, one of the things that I think I've noticed about your language is that you don't really like to use the term trigger for anxiety. You use anxiety bottlenecks or traps. But the idea is that you can notice and then control some of the bottlenecks or traps? You can. The, as a general rule, I try and stay away from the idea of controlling anxiety because the 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 typical thing is the more that you try and control it, the more it will 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 fight back. So you can get into a real tug of war with anxiety, <laughs> and 
it's generally better to be to to treat anxiety more lightly so to be more accepting of your responses but more aware of the ways in which you might be making it worse. Mm-hmm. So what are some of these common bottlenecks or traps that people should be on the lookout for? Yeah, so uh, a really common one is, is perfectionism, especially if you're sort of an anxious overachiever. So people will often res- respond to anxiety by trying to be more perfect and more in control. Uh, so to you know to not only have a plan B but to have a plan C, D, and E for for anxiety, and sometimes that can can all all of the re- responses and or traps are things that can backfire. So what happens if you take a perfectionistic approach is that if everything goes fine and you've used a perfectionistic approach your brain often jumps to the conclusion that the only reason it went fine is because because you did that and you that, worked 80 hours on that presentation therefore you must always work 80 hours on a presentation yeah that kind of thing uh rumination is an overthinking is, a, is another one so people often think that Worry has some sort of protective benefit so that it helps them make good decisions. Like if I don't worry about something, I'm going to let things slip through the cracks or I'm not going to foresee something that might go wrong. So people end up believing that they need to uh, think through everything in advance. They need to worry about things in order to make good decisions. And and if anything, it often goes in the other the other direction as well. So mm. o- occasionally overthinking something will result in in a new idea, uh, but it's equally likely to make you feel just more confused and more stuck and make you kind of get into a pattern of inaction. Mm. Uh, the other the other huge one is, is avoidance, so that people will tend to avoid things that make them feel anxious and then their anxiety about whatever they're avoiding tends to snowball. And avoidance causes lots of, interpersonal issues as well so uh, with colleagues uh, at work or the, you know the person who's w- wondering why it's taking you to, for a week to respond to an email or with uh, with people at home and in your in your personal relationships if you're dragging your heels on things that uh, are making you anxious is it possible that that people who use these tactics I think especially avoidance may not even be aware that they're anxious about something they're just unconsciously avoiding because that's a pattern that they've done yeah yeah so so people often overlook the role of anxiety and procrastination uh, sometimes mm-hmm. it can be it can be quite hidden uh, so maybe it's something that you've done a lot of times before but for some reason there's something about this time that's a wee bit different like you, you're it's um, for example, Obviously, I do a lot of writing, but if I get a new editor, then maybe I, uh, maybe I'm more avoidant in getting mm-hmm. started with that because I'm dealing with a new relationship there. Or so sometimes people overlook times when anxiety is involved. And another uh, real hidden one is where somebody is wanting you to do something and you resent being asked to do it, and so you blame the other person for why you're not getting on and doing that thing without recognizing that as well as that that, that maybe anger and resentment, there's a significant amount of anxiety involved in, in why you don't want to do that thing. I, with, that, with no disrespect to my beloved husband, I feel like that may have happened once or twice in my marriage. Yeah, me too, I'm sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, what about ruminating backwards. I, I, 
I'll use a real life example from from my life, which is um, I have I have a lot of anxiety around money, mm-hmm. and recently I've been sort of rerunning a scenario in my head where I made a, a bad financial decision because I was really anxious about a potential outcome. So mm-hmm. I basically left money on the table because I just wanted it resolved because I was so anxious, mm-hmm. and. I made a bad decision. It's okay. The world won't end. But sometimes I wake up even at night filled with regret and anxiety over this decision. It's like a rumination vortex, you know? Why did I do that? Replaying the scenario. It feels like a loop that I'm stuck on. What is happening? <laughs> and and why do we sometimes get stuck in these rumination vortexes. Yeah. So what or vortices, te- I think, is the plural. <laughs> um, what you're tipping into there is just a, a really, really common pattern with anxiety is that, is that anxious people like to resolve uncertainty as soon as possible. And often that can end up rushing into situations that don't need to be rushed into. So people will end up accepting worse outcomes over potentially Mm -hmm. better ones because they don't want to tolerate uncertainty. So one example I, I often give is, imagine that you're, you're selling a secondhand car and you can either trade it into a dealer and, and, and get that resolved today, but you know, you'll get a low price for it. Mm -hmm. And that let's say that that offer is not going away. You can always go. You can always choose to go back to that option, or you could stick it on Craigslist and sell it yourself. But you don't know exactly how much that you'll get for it, or you don't know exactly how long it will take to, uh, to take to sell. So an anxious person is much more likely to to go with the option that they where they can just have certainty straight away and have the uncertain situation resolved and dealing with that is just recognizing that pattern and and again like treating it a little bit lightly so Mm. when you know that you're doing something that's that's self-sabotaging when you know that you've got some sort of pattern it doesn't make you this horrible no good person who's never going to succeed it means that you've got you know you've got an Achilles heel and just treating it that little bit more lightly can can really help and also just acknowledging that your brain is trying to resolve it for you so it's 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 whirring away trying to do the best that it that it can to resolve it and although it that mechanism there is is trying to help you it's just not doing a very good job of it a bit like when a you know when a computer is trying to get something done but it like doesn't have the memory to to complete the task so it ends up getting stuck so just kind of recognizing that that you've got some emotional pain there and your, your brain is trying to help you figure it out, but it's just not doing that in a way that, that is actually helpful. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. But I think also um, understanding that once you've done the research, you've talked to people, that sometimes 
And I don't know if you think this is an okay adaptive strategy. I call it my emotional BATNA, you know, the term in negotiation, the best alternative to a negotiated agreement. And if something is really stressing me out, like say it might be selling that used car or it might be trying to negotiate over a salary or a fee with a client and I am losing sleep with it, there have been times that I have said, you know what, this is not worth my anxiety. I am just, I may be leaving money on the table, but I am okay with that. I need to move on. Mm -hmm. Is that okay? Yeah, there, there are no hard and fast rules with, with things. So mm -hmm. it, it, can, it, it may be okay. It, and it, and it may not be okay. So it's something that you have to, that you have to assess for yourself that I think that yeah. that's, that's a, that's a really tricky question about when you should take your anxiety into consideration and perhaps not put yourself out there to the, you know, on the anxiety ledge to the same extent as you might <laughs> might otherwise. One of the, just um, before I forget the, the point, one of the things I, I think I find incredibly helpful in terms of other people is people who have a different thinking style than I do. Mm. So um, I, one of my anxiety tendencies I know is to think kind of small. So mm. I will, uh, I, that will be something that I I do to try and mm -hmm. manage my anxiety is to only sort of make small bets on things. And I have uh, a brother-in-law who is who's who makes a lot bigger, who takes a, a lot bigger risks, makes a lot bigger bets on things, and tends to get better results from from that. It's really useful for me to have his thinking style there in the background. So almost uh, his name's Lee, and so I think you know, like what would what would Lee think in this situation? And just having someone who's got a different thinking style than mine, uh, it, without even asking him directly, I can think about uh, the the alternative approach that he would take. So again, that comes back to self awareness and knowing what, knowing the impact that anxiety has on the the choices that you. Uh, tend to want to make and adjusting for for that. So I always um, say that anxiety, the goal of anxiety management isn't to feel less anxiety, it's to make better decisions. So it's mm. to understand the ways in which anxiety impacts your decision making. What if instead of a maybe an avoider or procrastinator or someone who doesn't go for things they want because of their anxiety, you're like me and you're a leaper. So... <laughs> You know, you, you, you've sort of done enough work with your anxiety that you don't let it stop you from taking on risk. So here, here's a scenario. I get invited to give a speech that I'm really honored to give. Um, now, listeners, not all of you may be public speaking, but some of you are. But, but I am because I host this show and I'm a crazy person like that. So I get invited to give a talk at a venue that I'm very honored to be at. I say yes. Mm -hmm. And then... I spend, it's six weeks away. <laughs> I spend the next six weeks ra not only racked in anxiety, but probably, you know, letting it take up a lot more of my time than it might need to, both in terms of preparing and in terms of anticipating scary things. Yeah. So I would say set some limits on that. So set some, some set a concrete limit. One, um, one thing I read was, that you want to prepare an hour for every minute of a talk. So that if you, hmm. if it's a 40-minute talk, that you want to put 40 hours into preparing for it. So I would sit down with that as the 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 goal. And if it's a really important one, maybe it's that you spend 40, 40 hours writing it and 40 hours actually 
uh, practicing the delivery. Mm-hmm. So I would I would put some limits on yourself in that in that situation, and make sure that everything that you were doing was what everything that you were doing behaviorally was the things that were logically going to give you the best chance of success. After that, it's all about acceptance. That knowing that you were doing the things that are rationally, objectively, empirically associated with with you being successful and then and then leaving it at at that point and recognizing that that you will have some bubbling anxiety because you want to do a good job and that that that's okay that you don't need to reduce mm-hmm. your anxiety beyond, beyond that yeah but also setting the limit that I've done the I've done what I needed to do and I'm not going to ruminate or um, criticize myself, right? Getting into the negative self-talk that if only I had done X and if only I had done Y, things would be different. Yeah, it's kind of recognizing that there are, there are costs to doing something else. So mm-hmm. it, the, that's, you know, what people who are anxious don't tend to do all of the sensible things. So anxiety is much more likely to cause people to focus on the wrong things or to avoid than it mm. is to to kind of overdo the right things so a person so what's a wrong thing that we focus on so so it might be that the person puts off practicing or that they just get hung up on one aspect of of something and they get so hung up on a little aspect that they miss the bigger picture Hmm. or that they don't recognize that they need that that unexpected things will happen and they need to kind of mentally prepare for for being able to absorb those so sort of that 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 knowledge that you can't predict everything that will will go wrong so part of preparing is being in a, a decent psychological place that you can adapt to whatever m- might come up on the day um, yeah. when you're anxious you, you don't it, it that's that's kind of the the trap that it takes you away from doing the things that are really sensible rather than uh, Rather than this, an idea that people that people are anxious that are are doing all of that stuff and they're also being stressed out. It's it's usually that they're either focusing on the wrong things or they're avoiding. Mm-hmm. Well, let, let's talk about something that I think is really important to doing something amazingly, which is getting feedback, right? Mm-hmm. Positive and less positive, because obviously being able to handle feedback is a huge piece of career growth. And yet, I think that many of us anxious types, you know, we, we just we just avoid feedback or potentially difficult conversations for many reasons. Shame, being found out, having feelings we're uncomfortable with, etc. I mean, I know for me, I, I miss out on probably growing and learning and even having more real relationships by avoiding feedback, but I, I still avoid it. Mm-hmm. Is there sort of a, a baby step way that we can get more comfortable with feedback? Yeah. So one of the big things is to identify what helps you what helps you take on board feedback, what helps you be be more willing to to accept it. A lot of that can be who you're getting it from. So making mm. sure that you have Somebody who generally trusts in your your talent, who generally trusts in your capacity, and your psychological flexibility that you can that you know you can get a, a a point of feedback and adapt to that. So it's a lot easier to get constructive feedback from 
from someone where you fundamentally believe that they believe in your basic talents and competencies. So you want to get feedback from someone who thinks you're talented and who thinks you're just like a competent human, someone that you're sure doesn't see you as flaky or someone that sees you as mentally a mentally balanced person. And when you've got those people that you that you trust, it can be a lot easier. Um, also, just kind of realizing the format that you like to get feedback in can be really helpful as well. So uh, it's a lot easier not to be defensive sometimes if you're getting feedback in a form that's uh, that's that's written rather than being given it on the spot. So just kind of figuring out what's kind of useful for you. It might be that you realize that that kind of too much feedback can be can be really difficult so you might think well I'm instead of getting you know getting a hundred people to do a survey I might get five people and then Mm. digest that first so just kind of figuring out what the what's a helpful way to for you to get it and also just to realize that sometimes feedback is is not is not that helpful so thinking about the fact that even from someone who's a really good uh a useful feedback giver that maybe only 80% of it is is on point so so just kind of taking taking that into account as well and recognizing that you don't need to accept every every point of feedback that you can disagree or you can prioritize or all of all of that but also it's it's just managing that psychology about where you don't you don't go from I've got this one thing I'm not doing well to mm-hmm. I'm never going to succeed. I'm doomed mm-hmm. to fail. I'm terrible. I'm horrible. The all of that kind of thing. But sometimes feedback happens and it's not thought out. Sometimes you're in a meeting and you say something stupid or offensive in front of all your colleagues and you might get some in the moment or really post haste feedback. I think that for many of us that taps into that harsh self-criticism and it can a freeze you up in the meeting or in the day. It can, it can really create a bomb of shame, right? Give, Give me another, give me an example. So part of the, part of working through stuff like that is actually being, as as of of unlayering some of that shame is to be to be up is to not couch it to not to not uh, say it in a uh, in a in a vague general way but actually mm. give a, give an example of this is this is what I did and it was this is the stupid thing that I said so oh god well you know I say stupid things so often it's really hard but um <laughs> because because I blurt things I get nervous mm-hmm. and I blurt things or I feel like I'm not being heard so then I blurt things but recently I am um, I was in a meeting and with a client and they were presenting a new line of um videos that they had created and had spent a lot of time and, and, and one person on the team had really spearheaded them. And I said in the meeting, well, I just don't think these are as creative or as good as our other videos. Mm-hmm. And the minute I said it, it was like you could hear a pin drop. Mm-hmm. It was like my internal monologue had spoken and it was a major faux pas. And I definitely got feedback. So then I just really lost the rest of the day. I mean, it, it, I felt so ashamed. I was so angry at myself. I, I do that a lot. And then I think, oh, should I send a follow-up email? Do I need to apologize to that person? 
You know, it's it's all a little squishy because your own negative self-talk gets so involved, even if you may have legitimately screwed up. Yeah. Was it was it wrong? Like, I mean, did, was it a was it a useful was it an on point piece of feedback? It wasn't useful. Them? It wasn't useful at all. I was cranky. OK. <laughs> okay. I was cranky and my ego was offended because they didn't take my advice. OK. OK. So then I think it is just figuring out the whenever you have anything that happens and that that sort of tr- that triggers rumination i think you've got to f- ask yourself if there is a lesson to be learned here like what is the the what is the practical takeaway from from this mm. and sometimes there there isn't so going to give a i'll just give quickly give a couple of scenarios so where it's, where it's different. So we uh, got burgled. Uh, we've actually been burgled twice, but uh, hmm. and the, the first time it happened, I went went through all of the sort of woulda, shoulda, coulda things of things that I should have done to make our house less of a target for, for a burglary. Hmm. And in that scenario, there were things that uh, that should have that should have been done. That you know that some some basic things that that could have been done uh, to make that happen. Another scenario was where I accidentally got a parking ticket uh, and I didn't notice a sign that uh, mm-hmm. said that you couldn't park on a particular road for st- uh, during like street cleaning hours. That happened to me yesterday. <laughs> I almost got towed. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we, this 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 happened on a on a vacation and somebody told us we we mentioned that we had parked and somebody said you've probably been towed <gasps> and we're like uh. And actually, we hadn't been towed. We'd just gotten a ticket. But it was this whole, like, it took several hours before we figured out that we actually hadn't been towed. Um, so it wasn't as bad as what we thought. But in that scenario, that was the only time in the last five years that I've gotten a parking ticket. So there was no <laughs> logical lesson to be learned from that. I didn't. I don't need to be paying more attention to signs because I'm already paying pretty good attention to signs. Right. Um, th- th- there wasn't a lesson to be learned there. So I think sometimes it's just distinguishing that mm. and recognizing that there there isn't always, mm-hmm. um, but just coming up with like a really simple plan. So in the the burglary example, I might have thought of ten or fifteen different things that I could have done to make a house less appealing to burglars, right? But if I think that big, then I'm not going to then I'm just going to get overwhelmed and not do all of those those things so kind of really streamlining it down to what are the the real top priorities here and maybe it's just one like what is the number one thing i need to to change that is actually doable to change in this in that situation i mean if you were to think about that for your scenario because it's it does kind of sound like you're saying it's it falls into the category of things of there is a lesson to be learned here yes uh, a prevention focused lesson so what 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 would you say it would be what's the number one doable thing that would help you stop making that mistake again well it's funny it was actually the culmination of a big lesson for me which is that i have to choose when i talk and so what i started doing is um trying to count the times when I talk in meetings and making sure um, it's almost like avoiding impulse. This is a really crazy analogy, but I think listeners might appreciate it. So, you know, when you you buy something on impulse and you regret it versus Mm -hmm. when you've researched something, you've saved up and you're like, this is gold. I have to buy this. This is a great purchase. Mm -hmm. I've tried to approach my my presence in meetings, because my job requires a lot of meetings, like that. 
No impulse purchases. Only things that I know I really want. So it would be don't blurt out things that you're thinking, especially if you're in a certain kind of mood. Save up for when you feel that you have something that's really additive to the conversation. And actually listen. Get out of your own head about how anxious you feel because maybe you feel like you uh, someone doesn't like you or you're going to get fired or there's some dynamic in the room that's making you feel anxious. Stop. Actually listen to the conversation and only talk when you have something important to say. Now, I am not there yet, but I'm working on it. Yeah, and I think that even translating that principle into behavioral terms as much as you as you can. Uh, so it might be something like that you that you that you practice giving sandwich feedback or something like that, rather than and that and that would be something mm. that would would uh, help. I mean, sandwich feedback bl- like something good, something bad, something good or vice versa? Yes, yes, there's something good, something bad. The 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 um the uh poo, the poo sandwich. So that if you yes. you well you're done. We are a clean podcast. Yeah. So um that if, that if that's how you you standardly speak, uh then mm. that's going to help prevent the the bloating because you're going to need to think about the uh you're going to need to think about the ingredients of that sandwich. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, I also, in my mind, always repeat the lyric from Hamilton, talk less, smile more, which is, you know, really sometimes good advice. Yeah. There's, I think, you know, just not acknowledging that, that you know that, that one of your patterns is is, is impulsivity. Mm-hmm. So having some once you know the way and that's what I said about how anxiety is all as anxiety management isn't about reducing anxiety. It's about better decision making so having some really concrete strategies and it's to help prevent those patterns happening and then once you've done all of the practical things that you do then accepting the level of anxiety of remaining anxiety that you feel after that so it sounds like that you that you you know you need some real practical strategies around not uh, around managing impulsive decision making when you're when you're feeling anxious and you know you'll you'll end up with a handful of strategies for doing that but also just thinking in terms of things that you want to behaviors you want to do rather than behaviors that you want to avoid because it's it's just too hard to have a have a have a plan to to not do things so you want to have your plans be this is what I'll do this is not rather than this is what I'll not do I think you just changed my life. <laughs> As you said that, I thought, that is completely what I do. I make impulsive decisions when I'm feeling anxious. Yeah. With money, with talking, with all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And everybody has a slightly different manifestation. And that's why sort of becoming a self-expert is, is so important, is, is to understand the, the the ways in which anxiety manifests for you and that's something that that's sometimes going to a a uh seeing somebody on an individual basis seeing a therapist on an individual basis can be useful for because sometimes uh 
you know, someone that that works with anxious people a lot, you know, or works with anxious overachievers a lot, is going to be able to see those patterns really quickly. So, and mm-hmm. and help you have those insights and light bulb moments just, you know, much more quickly than you could ever have them on your on your own, and that can be kind of useful too. One of the things that 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 I think those of us who have traveled with anxiety for many years is that we we do get to know our anxiety and hopefully we we get a certain level of of power and awareness over our our bad habits but i think for a lot of of fellow travelers you know feeling your anxiety might ironically be more comfortable than doing something that scares you or talking to someone who's an actual person who you might have to introduce yourself to. Instead, you could just have a conversation with your anxiety in the corner, right? I mean, there's so many ways in in which those of us, you know, I mean, for me, I was my anxiety is like, it's like one of my oldest relationships. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, like, it's literally traveled with me throughout my life. Yeah. And you, you really want to get a bit of psychological distance fr- from that. So it can be so. There's there's a couple of of main different therapeutic approaches to to anxiety. There's there's the cognitive behavioral therapy approach, mm-hmm. and then there's what's called the acceptance and commitment therapy approach, or mindfulness and acceptance approach. And the mindfulness and acceptance approach uses a lot of sort of quirky strategies that are designed at helping people get just a little bit more more distance from from anxiety. So one of the the sort of interesting little um, things that you can do is to write down an uh, write down an anxious thought on a piece of paper and put that piece of paper in your shoe and walk around with that piece of paper in your shoe for the day. And what it is is it's a physical lesson on the fact that you can have this kind of odd, nagging, uncomfortable sensation. And you can still go about and do everything purposeful that you needed to do in the day. <laughs> uh, another thing is to to use uh, to think of your anxiety as a as a character who's kind of different than than you. Like to come up with a funny a funny character, uh, some sort of obnoxious character um, that you where you when you're thinking about your anxiety your voice you don't think of it as you but as this other character and and some people those for some people those sorts of strategies don't appeal at all um for some people they they do appeal and they actually want to carry them out for some people just kind of hearing about the concept of the strategy can kind of be useful for recognizing that you want to just externalize your your anxiety a little bit and just have it be have that have a, a, a lighter relationship with that anxious voice. Well, and, and frankly, tell it to buzz off, right? I mean, you know, I, I never forget, I, I, I talked to, did an interview with um, Ashley C. Ford, who's a, a writer and a television host. And she's, she said that my anxiety is a liar and I don't trust it, you know? Sort of almost like, you know, like you're a, a girl in third grade who's like, I don't, she's not my best friend anymore. I'm not going to be friends with her. But it was, it was such an amazing attitude because it was like, this is a very intimate relationship, but I don't trust you and I know how to manage you. You know, don't manipulate me today. Um, it's it's so complicated, though, because it is when you've had anxiety sometimes for decades or it comes and goes, 
it is in a way one of your most intimate relationships and you have to negotiate with it sometimes. Yeah, so I think uh, sort of recognizing the the ways again it comes back to recognizing the ways in which that voice leads you astray. So, you know, anxiety is telling me that thinking more about this issue is going to lead to making a better choice or anxiety is telling me that there's a right choice and a wrong choice in this in this situation or anxiety is telling me that, that the choice I make here is really important when actually it's not important at all you know it's pretty it's pretty irrelevant mm-hmm. or it's pretty it's a pretty minor choice and I don't need to overthink it um, or anxiety is telling me the only way I will ever be accepted in life is if my performance is perfect all the time and I make no social faux pas or if I never lose my train of thought or you know all of those kinds of things so everybody's relationship that they come to with with that anxious voice and the way that they the way that they sort of see it is going to be something that works for them like for some people it might be telling their anxiety to buzz off for some people it might be seeing it as a as the the you know the cranky old uncle who says racist things that you need to deal with every Thanksgiving who's nevertheless part of the family and get, still gets invited you, you've just got to kind of figure out what is what is useful for you and, and what one thing I often say is as one person's light bulb moment is another person's eye roll so this so strategies that 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 are life-changing for one person might just be completely like, like an eye roll for somebody else and it just it really is just figuring out what is what works for you. So I can't let you leave without talking a little bit about um, email and social media's role in sort of triggering a lot of those bottlenecks, whether it's rumination, negative self-talk, perfectionism. If only I had worked harder. I would have been like her, you know, who's got this big article that I'm reading about on LinkedIn, et cetera, et cetera. Um, help. <laughs> you know, for those of us who are ambitious, who have some of these bottlenecks that we fall into, sometimes just opening our email or going on LinkedIn or Facebook can be a landmine. Yeah. So one of the, the things I uh, have worked out works really well for me is if I – get an email that works me up, mm-hmm. I go back and read it the the, the next day. Like I, I give it a night's sleep or I give it 24 hours and, and go back and read it the next day. And often I will have actually misremembered or miss I will have taken in the contents of the email wrong. Like I'll remember it as using a certain word, like a much mm-hmm. harsher word than the mm-hmm. word that was actually used. Like um, So... Just kind of recognizing that there are all sorts of reasons why email communication can be funny sometimes. So you, you because you're missing all of those context cues about what the person was doing when they um, when they sent the email. So just like you were saying before, like you were cranky in that meeting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you were you, you were coming into it cranky. So there could be all sorts of reasons why the person who is writing you an email is crank, is cranky at the time and the, the lack of smiley faces or this kind of short fuse is actually nothing to do with, with you. But you don't have any of that information. So And what about what about triggering social media that triggers perfectionism and stewing and, you know, the what ifs? I mean, just kind of recognizing that you're on your own, that everyone's on their own path, and and also that kind of like the 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 
in terms of your your own social circle, like thinking about that that sort of idea of a rising tide can lift all boats. Mm-hmm. You know, the more that people, the more that your 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 network of people is full, is filled with successful people, the the kind of the better it's going to be for you. But just kind of just that basic rec- uh, recognition that you you only see the highlight reel uh, mm-hmm. of, of what from what people are, are are posting on social media and just. Yeah, and and just that that you're that you're on your own path. You know, the reason that you're not doing what somebody else is doing is because that you you know you're not choosing that. That we're all there's always opportunity cost with things. So you you can only choose sort of one path at a time. Um, mm-hmm. And so you you and and there there are all sorts of things that 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 you're not seeing or that that if you're making a choice to you know to have kids or that kind of thing, and that's that's meaning that you're not able to work the crazy hours that uh that someone else might be working to have a different kind of success that, that that's what you're choosing because that's what you want for yourself and, and well and and I think also I think I I remember you saying this or reading this there's some there's a little bit of narcissism right in in the anxiety and the ruminating right making it all about yourself instead of like you said celebrating another's per, another's achievement or accomplishment or just yeah, Goodness just just recognizing that everyone needs to have a turn at like being this, you know, at being the star. Mm-hmm. That it's just not there's it's not there's nothing fun about a life in which that you are the best at everything that you that you do. Like a lot of kids have, you know, like have might have grown up where they they were like always the smartest kid in their class or always kind of close to the smartest kid in their class and maybe felt kind of frustrated with that like didn't like to work on teams or that kind of mm-hmm. thing because they felt like their teammates weren't as weren't as, as uh, uh, dedicated or ambitious or whatever as what what they were and so when you when you reach higher levels of things then you're not going to be the when you you're swimming in a different a different swimming pool you're not going to be the top all of the time and and knowing that not only is that sort of a, a not possible to be to always be the star but it's just not desirable either like you really want to be surrounding yourself with people who are better than you at some other things uh, <laughs> and you don't want to be attempting to be good at everything because you want to be attempting to be good at the things that are really important and meaningful to you. You know, it's so funny. My therapist said this yesterday, yesterday to me because I've, I'm so anxious and I'm so frazzled. And, and she said, why do you have to be so special at everything? Whoever told you that? Yeah. And I said, but I've always been special since I was three years old. And she said, well, who says? <laughs> yeah. And that's that's the fear for people with anxiety is that they that, that and that's kind of sort of what I was saying about it's like a, it's a self protective thing. So it's the yeah. idea that if I'm not if I, that you end up believing the only way I've succeeded in life or the only way I'm I'm a I'm being accepted and loved and that I've got my kind of basic needs met is by being excellent is by overdoing everything and it's recognizing that that you that you don't need to be doing that super self-protective thing that that not being special that not being the best at everything isn't a threat to you it isn't a threat to you, you know getting the basics of, of, of what you want out of life. That's it for this week's show. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe and submit a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. And if you have an idea for the show or you want to tell us your story, 
drop me a note at anxiousachiever at gmail.com or you can tweet me at Mora A.M. That's M-O-R-R-A-A-M. Special thanks to the team at Harvard Business Review, my producer Mary Dew, the team at Podcast Garage, and all of our guests who are telling us their stories from the heart. From the HBR Presents Network, I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. <laughs>